Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. Amid COVID-19, health disparities among African-Americans and people of color, as well as challenges that higher education institutions face, have been at the forefront of public conversation. But even before COVID-19, historically Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, have been trying to uplift African-Americans in research, academics, and career opportunities. They've broken ground in fighting health disparities, have brought diversity into the academic and research community, and are overcoming public funding and grant-seeking barriers. Today, we continue our HBCU podcast series, which began on our sister podcast, GovCast, to speak with Stillman College President Dr. Cynthia Warwick. She's the first female president of Stillman and has extensive experience in both pharmaceutical and health services research. She brings that background to the table with her work with the National Institutes of Health and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to uplift medical and biological sciences at Stillman while bridging the federal funding divide that HBCUs often face. She'll go into it more, but this conversation will help you learn more about the role that HBCUs and academics of color play in the health space, and why it's important to uplift these institutions. All right, Dr. Work, thank you for joining me on HealthCast today. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastically. Great. I wanted to first start by focusing on you and your career leading to your presidency at Stillman College. You have extensive experience in pharmacy and health services research, and you have been in positions in higher education for over 20 years. Now, as president of Stillman College, how do you bridge those two notable areas of your background in your position? Well, throughout my academic career, I have moved my academic into administrative. I guess that's what you might call it. As I assumed a chair and dean and then president positions, I still continued to do my research. I was still involved actively on. NIH, that's National Institute of Health, study sections that review grant proposals. I still review grant proposals for the uh, CDC. And right now, I also serve on the Federal Advisory Committee for the Department of Veterans Affairs Education Committee. So all of those things kind of blend together in terms of my background in pharmacy and health services, and really facilitating a health services biomedical research program at Stillman College. That's fantastic. And as an African-American woman in a position of leadership, how do you lead at your institution and how do you encourage rising women of similar background at your college to pursue fields like health and medicine? Thank you. You know, I am the first female president of Stillman College in 144 years of its existence. And it's been great. And one of the things people really wanted to celebrate, oh, you're the first woman, you're the first woman. But I looked around and I said, okay, this isn't really about me. This is about women's leadership. And what can we do to promote other female first? So we started recognizing the Alabama female first. 
because women don't get recognized for the work that they're doing. And so every year, except this past year because of COVID, we um, get a group, we select a group of women who are first, just like me, like the first Supreme Court justice, the first congresswoman that was a female representing Alabama, the first president, female president at the University of Alabama. And so we had the first African-American female Miss Alabama. So we, we look for a lot of those female first so we can lift them up and recognize that many times women are forgotten. People take us for granted for all the great work we do. And this next year, what I want to do is we'll have our fourth class of Alabama Female First. And after the luncheon, we will have what I call a, a speed mentoring session. So instead of speed dating, the Female First will be speed mentoring with my female students on campus to kind of give them an idea of where they came from and, and what it took for them to get to where they are today. It's great that your institution is able to do programs like this. And that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, Stillman is a relatively small HBCU. It's a small liberal arts college in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, for listeners who may not know. But despite its size, Stillman still produces an impressive number of programs, including biological sciences and pre-med. Can you go into what your faculty and students are doing in these areas of study? Yes, I will. We established a biomedical academy because uh, in the past, Stillman used to have a lot of NIH funding and training programs. We had faculty who were very accomplished. And then when those faculty retired, we kind of had a void of that kind of leadership. So, so since I've been here and because of my background, I have recruited new faculty in our natural science department who are very interested in getting our students involved in undergraduate research programs in the summer. So we've established partnerships with uh, the University of Iowa, with the Salk Institute, Drexel University, Tulane University. And of course, we've had extended relationships with the University of Alabama and University of Alabama, Birmingham. So our students get exposed to research while they're undergrads. We also established the Biomedical Academy to be very deliberate about providing students the tools and the exposure to test prep for the GRE as well as the MCAT or PCAT or DAT so that they will be competitive for admissions into biomedical professional programs as well as graduate programs. You know, last year I looked at the NSF data on how many doctorates were produced at Stillman and other undergraduate institutions. And between 2009 and 2018, we produced 37 PhDs. And for our size, when we only graduate 100 students each year, that's really significant. And that number put us in the top 10 of baccalaureate HBCUs in terms of producing doctorates. 
that's also significant because our student population come from really meager families. 87% of my student population receive Pell Grants, and that's because they come from very low-income households. So producing 37 HBCUs from that type of student population is really significant. And because we weren't even trying to do it, it's even more significant. So now we're deliberate about it, and I think that number will increase. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, that makes me wonder, how does the work that your students and faculty produce differ from normal liberal arts schools? You know, you're an HBCU and you noted all of these rather impressive facts about your institution in recent years. So what value does being an HBCU campus like Stillman have for specifically medical studies and research areas for African-American students? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Stillman has been in existence for 144 years and biology is our number two program. We have over 130 biology majors out of our population of 790 students. So that's a significant number when you have 27 degree programs. And um, Stillman has really, I think the HBCUs do a great job in the sciences because of our size. When you start looking at the turnover in terms of undergraduate science majors at your big universities, because they don't get the same type of nurturing and contact with faculty and that kind of support that people need. And everybody needs it if you're going into medicine or pharmacy or biomedical, anything. And so we're able to do one-on-one -on -one type of tutoring, faculty mentorships, student mentorships, partnerships with major research institutions. And if you have um, 100 students in a class as opposed to 15 or 20 students in a class, it's easier to do that kind of one-on-one -on -one answer questions. Students feel empowered. They feel like they can come and talk to their faculty members. They know their name. They know when they're not there and they know when they're present and they know to drive the work, you know, to make them do their best. So I think HBCUs are really important in terms of ensuring and respecting African-American culture but also expecting greatness from their students and making them do their best work. Speaking of work with major research institutions and generally with big public funding from, you know, federal agencies like the NIH and CDC, like you mentioned, federal grants and contracts are a key way that some studies across the academic space get support. But as we've talked about with officials from Tougaloo on our sister podcast, GovCast, HBCUs don't receive a fair share of those funds. Why is federal funding important to HBCUs like Stillman, particularly in biological and medical research? And what barriers are there in your perspective that contribute to disparities in federal contracting and grant receiving to HBCUs? 
Right. Well, I think you had two parts of that question is why are these types of research funds, grant funds, cooperative agreements, contracts, why should HBCUs get a bigger piece of the pie? Well, right now they have such a small percentage of the pie, but yet in the biomedical sciences, we produce more STEM graduates than these major research institutions that get these uh, millions of dollars in NIH and CDC and NSF funding. So we do more with less, and I think it would be more efficient and effective to increase the amount of funding, both grants and contracts, to HBCUs because the demographics of the nation are changing. And we need representation of all ethnic groups and all types of people, gender, et cetera, in our research institutions and in the federal government. In order to do that, we really need to support HBCUs because they bring a lot of those STEM graduates of color into the workplace, into graduate programs and health professions where we're experiencing these health disparities in these populations of color. So in order to address that, you need more practitioners of color, more researchers of color. When somebody from a particular cultural background looks at a problem, they will come to the problem differently from someone. You may have the same type of content, scientific expertise, content, but that cultural competency that you bring to the table is missing. So, so for example, we have this COVID-19 vaccine rollout. We know that people of color have been disproportionately impacted by mortality and incidence of COVID-19 positive cases. We know that in order to get those vaccines out to those populations, we'll have to work with a more culturally competent basis. But now what we're seeing is that those vaccines are not being distributed in a way to get to these populations of color because you don't have enough representation developing those health policies, developing those rollout programs within the government. So you need us in order to not get, you know, I, I was just in Houston and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee was criticizing the government. Well, what are you going to do? You have all these folks in these, um, you know, neighborhoods that don't have access to transportation. They, you know, are at high risk for this disease, but yet they can't get a vaccination appointment because they don't have Internet. They, they don't have internet in their homes. They don't have a smartphone. So it's culture is real important, especially for the demographic changes that this country is going to be is experiencing and will continue to experience. I want to piggyback off of that in a moment, the health disparities conversation and COVID-19. But before I do, I just wanted to ask you what is Stillman doing amid, you know, these various barriers of accessibility to federal support to better connect and find opportunities with the federal government 
either through funding or by finding career pathways there for your students? Well, we we are very proactive about establishing these partnerships because as an NIH study section reviewer, I know that the first thing we look at is your biosketch. Well, does the PI have research experience in this area? Do you have publications in this area? Do you have mentors or partners that work with you in this area? How current is your research in this particular area? And so because HBCUs don't have a lot, unless you have a medical school like Howard and um, Harry, Charles Drew, or pharmacy school like Florida A&M, Xavier, Texas Southern, you don't have access to these biomedical research dollars. So you have to partner and you partner with those major institutions that do have these research dollars. So because I have worked in that area, I do a lot of this on my own and identify new faculty who also have the interest in terms of developing a research portfolio and the skills and the network. I think that's one of the challenges is how do you develop a network in biomedical research so that you can expand those opportunities, partnering with companies on contracts, partnering with major research institutions on grants. So what uh, previous administrations have done long ago, I've been in this business a while, they required major research institutions to have an HBCU partner. They require contractors, federal government contractors, to have an HBCU as a small business partner. That way, they bring them on board to do part of the work so they can build that portfolio of research and then expand into getting their own work. So it's kind of like a train-the-trainer kind of, you know, mentor-protege type of relationship. Well, we work with the Tougaloo Research Foundation to help facilitate these mentor-protege types of activities, especially when it's regarding DOD and our cybersecurity program. In terms of biomedical, I have a huge network by serving as an NIH reviewer and a CDC reviewer. So I have access to a lot of researchers that others don't, and I have built rapport over years with those groups. So now when they're looking for diversity, they call me and say, well, Cynthia, what do you, you know, do you have any student that's interested in this? And, and I start grooming those students for these relationships. So that's what we do at Stillman. That's fantastic, especially given the position you're in. That's certainly a unique aspect, you know, that you could bring to your students and to your faculty. I want to go back to that issue of health disparities among people of color, especially amid COVID-19. That's become very apparent, as you said. You sort of touched upon it already, but from your perspective as someone who has a lot of research background in this area, What other factors do you see playing into these health disparities? And on the topic of HBCUs, how can institutions like yours and, you know, increasing support for researchers of color help bridge these disparities? Right. Yeah, this um, 
I think we're going to, we already had disparities before COVID-19. And COVID-19 has illuminated even more disparities. And um, this disparity in terms of culture and understanding access, I think a lot of people think everyone has what they have. Everyone has a college education. Everyone has a car. Everyone has an iPhone. Everyone has, you know, uh, access to professionals. They can call upon for advice, for medical advice, et cetera. And when you start looking at populations of color, you don't see that same amount of representation. When you think about the number of African-American physicians in the United States, it's less than 3% of all physicians. You know, when you think about, you know, that same term of researchers, you know, those numbers are very small. So you really can't, that person is not accessible to their population. So it's important that we increase those numbers so that that representation and that cultural understanding is there. Otherwise, policies will just continue to be developed for the larger members of society that don't have these access issues and education issues and, you know, uh, fear of the hospital. When you grew up, when I was growing up, you know, it was a, a segregated healthcare system. So Black people couldn't even go to white hospitals. So they access healthcare differently because of segregation. And now we have to have more Black doctors and nurses and physicians assistants and nurse practitioners and anesthesiologists and surgeons and the whole nine yards in order to better make the population feel more comfortable interacting with the healthcare system so they will access it. And you don't have that discrimination or those, I guess, subtleties that make people not trust the healthcare system. So it, it's a lot to it. And then, of course, we've got to expand healthcare so that everybody has access to prescription drugs and good medical treatment so we can bring up the whole United States of America's healthcare. Yeah. And on the topic of COVID-19, I, of course, have to ask you about how Stillman is operating to keep the health of your students and faculty safe amid the pandemic. Technology has been something lots of students have been you know, using as well as faculty. So how has technology played a role in reducing the spread of the virus on your campus? And also, is your school doing anything to contribute to research or work around COVID-19? Yes. Well, we're doing all of the above. So in March, when the pandemic pretty much hit around our spring break, we extended our spring break a week and got all the faculty technology because a lot of our faculty use technology on the campus and did not have their own laptops at home. So that was the first barrier we had to cross is making sure that our faculty had the technology they needed in order to 
teach fully online. Then when the students came back, we got them the technology they needed because many of them did not have their own laptops. So we were able to get Chromebooks for all of the students. And, you know, it, it was everybody was looking for these Chromebooks. So we got in early orders, but there were so many back orders. It took us a while to get to the other students. Then we joined the University of Alabama Birmingham's Guide Safe program, which is a testing program. And this, again, tells you about culture. So their expectation was that students would test for the virus at one of their test sites in advance of starting the fall semester. Well, we kind of anticipated that wasn't gonna happen because that really wasn't our culture. It's very difficult to understand if you have students in rural communities, they're not gonna travel to an urban center to wait in line for a COVID test or their parents have to work or their parent has more than one job or they're working and can't get off from work in order to go get tested. So we set up a, a testing for our whole campus for a week before we started the fall semester. And that worked out really well. We contracted with a federally qualified healthcare center to provide the testing. And we quickly learned that this is really hard work. And the, the healthcare center quickly learned, oh, wow, what did we get ourselves into? Because it's just more involved than what you know. You know, in terms of getting a license to be able to do use the test and getting everybody to respond for the test during particular hours. So we had to follow up because we thought we had gotten all the students. And then in September, we find out we have a, over 100 students who have not been tested. So we established a public health task force made up of members of our faculty and staff. We had PhD trained epidemiologists, masters of public health on our campus. And um, they quickly devised a testing program to test those students who had not gotten tested and to test our high touch groups like our security guards, our athletes, our folks that work on campus in the housing and in food service and all these areas. So we put in a very robust testing program. And then we were able to get tests from the federal government, the Abbott quick test, I forget what you call it, Binax test. And so in the spring, we tested everyone and now we do weekly testing. We, we have a dormitory that we quarantine. So we've been We've done a really good job in terms of not allowing any spread of the virus on campus. We've had very few cases among our students, even this semester. I think we've only had like five student cases and five staff cases. And out of those staff cases, two were contractors, people that just come and work on campus under a contract. So they're not really our employees. But we test, we require testing on our campus. We require masking. We put in a robust cleaning program. So I think because of my background and because of 
you know, how important it is to keep the campus faculty and staff safe. You know, we put in significant protocols and policies that would do that. Right. Are your students or faculty doing anything in the research space around COVID-19 or relevant areas that could help address, you know, public health or the pandemic? Has the pandemic spurred any research interest in this area? Yes, and I think it's more on the public health access side because we know our students are safer on our campus than they are at home. So, you know, at home, they may not have these protocols in place. They, uh, you know, may be in an environment where the community really doesn't believe there's a COVID-19 virus. So when they're here, they get the education, they get the training and understanding of why it's so important that we follow these CDC public health guidelines. And it can, by being exposed to this, we hope that many of our students will look to going into graduate programs or working in public health. The other side of that is we're collecting all of our testing data. And so I think once this pandemic is over, we'll be able to analyze those data to just see how well or what kinds of best practices we could share with other institutions. We found even now we've been, uh, this is basketball season, and one of the schools in our conference was not testing. And we had a, we heard that a student that played a game on our campus had tested positive from the other school and they had symptoms. And so we quickly turned around and retested all of our student athletes and found that none of them had been infected. But it's, you know, they see how serious we are about it. And collecting those data, I think we'll learn a lot after the fact. We're also partnering with local physicians in the community to be a vaccination site for our community. We believe that many in our community, which is West Tuscaloosa and West Alabama, rural Black Belt counties, will be willing to come to Stillman for vaccinations, that they will trust that we're going to do the right thing because we're so serious and take all these precautions. Well, you know, Stillman may be a small school, but it certainly is mighty in its COVID-19 response and the work that your students, your faculty, and of course yourself are doing. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And if you need any information, just contact me by email. My email is cwarick, C-W-A-R-R-I-C-K, at stillman.edu. And I'll be happy to provide you with any additional information you might want to know about our programs. We have a lot of it posted on our COVID-19 updates on our website, stillman.edu. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, 
head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Bryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.